Everything reflects and absorbs light in a unique manner on its surface. We're looking at the shape of a spectrum, and that is much more information because instead of looking at three color bands, we're looking at 500 color bands. It allows you to really see and identify, yeah, the molecular makeup of objects. We're standing by. Entry interface minus five minutes. Hey everybody, I'm John Severance and welcome to this episode of the New Space Podcast. Today we're talking to Dan Katz. He's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Orbital Sidekick. It's a company that Dan founded in the garage of a San Francisco apartment to send satellites into space to study the Earth at the molecular level. It's called hyperspectral imagery. And here's the deal. Every living thing on our planet has a chemical makeup and a corresponding chemical or spectral signature. And with hyperspectral imagery, you can detect a methane leak that's invisible to the naked eye. If I've learned anything during our initial focus on Earth observation, it's that we humans can only see a tiny fraction of the world, the range of visible light on the electromagnetic spectrum. For everything else, we need technology. And today that's happening in the realm of commercial satellite companies like Orbital Sidekick. Let's jump in to get the full story. Hey, Dan, thanks, and welcome to the New Space Podcast. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. All right, cool. So your company, Orbital Sidekick, you're the co-founder and CEO? That is correct. Yes. My co-founder, Tushar Prabhakar, and myself, we started Orbital Sidekick, or OSK, as we've shortened it to <laughs> fewer syllables. We started OSK back in 2016, a typical Silicon Valley startup story. We're okay. based in San Francisco and we started the company in my garage in my apartment <laughs> in San Francisco. And the two of us, we've been in, in the aerospace industry and the commercial space industry for a while now, both over a decade. And we met while we were at Space Systems Loral, which is now okay. part yep. of Maxar. And so while we were there, we were working on a lot of geostationary communication satellites, which is SSL's kind of bread and butter. So building big, like kitchen-sized satellites for direct TV and Dish Network, and Sirius XM radio and the likes. I think we had a hand in the design, build, test, launch, and commissioning of over 30 large satellites while we were there. And <clears throat> we were also started to work on the... There are some new space programs that were coming up. So Skybox came to, which is now part of Planet. They had SSL build the Skysat constellation for them. And so we actually, Tushar and I both worked on that program to some to certain degrees while we were there as well. And so we we're seeing a lot of this kind of new innovation and technology coming to the forefront of this new commercial space sector. This is in the early to mid-2010s. And one thing we noticed is that there was a lot of focus on trying to read a newspaper over someone's shoulder from space. Let's get really high spatial resolution and go that model and build the infrastructure around it. Let's get as many pixels as possible at a high, high resolution and on the spatial side. But what was lacking was more on the spectral side, so high spectral resolution data. And also what we thought was a really good end user go-to-market strategy. Um, you know, how are we actually leveraging that data to to really solve a real world terrestrial problem for commercial earth observation? And so I've got a background, education background in physics and astrophysics. So that was my first exposure to high spectral resolution 
data using imaging spectrometers to look at the chemical composition of celestial objects like stars and planets. And really, so understanding the power that for to be able to chemically fingerprint things by looking at their absorption and reflectance properties. Then Tushar has a background in, in some energy startups. So he had worked for Calera, which was looking at turning CO2 into cement with mixed results. It's a hard problem. And then he also worked for a couple other companies doing like the wind turbines and a few other things. So we combined all of that together into this plan of saying, we know satellites very well. We know spectral imaging well. We know this emerging and the clean energy marketplace and what some of the kind of issues are within the energy sector and how can we help solve them. Actually, some formative events for both of us, I think, was the uh, PG&E was having a lot of issues in the early 2010s. You have the big San Bruno pipeline explosion, big event, methane emissions, something that has to be controlled. And so people are really focusing on energy infrastructure and pipelines. So he said, we've got this amazing global monitoring platform in satellites that now you have better access to space. You've got SpaceX and a commoditization of space components and all of that. So easier access to space. Let's put hyperspectral imagers on there get high spectral resolution data, chemically fingerprint anything on the ground, especially around oil and gas pipelines. Let's see see if they're leaking. Let's make sure that there's no threats to those assets by with construction activity or changes in like erosions or topographical changes or changes in vegetation that might indicate leak that's happening underground. So there, there's a lot of different things we can we could do there and it's just something we can clearly go after. So we put that model back in 2016 um, and again, started my garage, started with putting a an MVP together. Well, how do we like get this thing off the ground? So well, let's start putting them on, we'll put hyperspectral system on aircraft. Then we'll graduate to putting a hyperspectral camera on the International Space Station, which we did in 2018. Then we launched our first satellite in 2021. And now we have six more satellites launching this year, two of which are going up in one month from today. Oh, that's Very awesome. Exciting. Yeah. So anyway... There's a, a long-winded answer to you're the co-founder and the CEO, yeah, but so, yeah, just that's the back that's the backdrop to everything here, and I'm super happy to dive into to any kind of detail of that. But that is really the story. Yeah, that's cool. I want to go back to the garage setting. So normally sure. you have your Silicon Valley startups; they're working in their garage on a chipset, trying to build a computer. Mm-hmm. How do you go from that to six years ago when you were thinking of a satellite? That's like you said; they used to be the size of kitchens. Now they're the size of toasters. Yeah. That, that taught, that how you decided, wow, I can get into the satellite game. That's possible, right? From my garage. Yeah. I, actually, one thing we decided on pretty early was that we were not going to build our own satellites. And I think that was actually a very formative philosophy for us for how we're going to build a company and that the focus was not going to be on manufacturing and building satellite buses. And because we figured that's becoming commoditized, there, there's people who do that really well. Like, why get into that game? Let's leverage that. And we think it's a race to the bottom on on like how you can buy satellite components. And then, so the focus was really on the hyperspectral payload and then, but really on the analytics and how can we extract intelligence from, from those data cubes and provide actionable insights to end users. So we had like some hardware, right? Because they were like testing out different hyperspectral sensors with different specs and things like that in like lab setups. And But a lot of it was really on go-to-market strategy and then the analytics engine that, go, that goes behind it. And then it was just using our connections and leveraging this blossoming new space 
industry, new space 2.0 or whatever people are calling yeah, it yeah. is to get the connection for, okay, we got a connection to NanoRacks, which operates as a space act agreement with NASA on the international space station. So then we use the ISS national lab to get some grant funding from them that also to help pay for putting like our first system on the space station and started going down that path. It's not like we were building full-fledged satellites in a garage, but we did build the hyperspectral sensor system that we put on the space station. We did integrate that in my garage and then shipped it off to do some testing and that passed NASA safety reviews and then, and then got that launch. So, yeah. So when you made that choice to go more the spectrum route than the spatial route, let's say, why did you decide to do that? Did you see an unmet need? Did you see things that spectral imagery could tell us that spatial can't? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a little bit of a looking at everything in parallel. So we said the existing commercially available and even publicly available data sets that are out there, can they really answer some of the questions that need answered or solve some of the problems on the ground within energy infrastructure monitoring? And the answer for us was really no. You have, you know, can we see oil spills and methane plumes and do chemical change detection and a lot of really impactful things that you need in order to service these energy clients? And the answer with the existing data sets, the answer was really no. There was a clear gap for us in that technology gap. We also figured that even if we could get away with some super high-res spatial imagery, is that even viable? And from a cost perspective and a latency perspective, to try to task a worldview satellite it was just not tenable. Your business case could never close. So there was real value in owning your own asset. And it doesn't cost $500 million anymore to launch satellites. You could do it for a hundredth of that cost. So it all made sense in terms of what we were doing. Also, the other thing too, we even we also said, can we do what we're doing without space? Can we do it with aircraft or drones or other methods. And we do fly on aircraft. Well, we've been flying on aircraft for a long time, but it just doesn't scale. It's yeah. just not yeah. tenable. There are millions of miles of pipeline. There's millions of square kilometers of relevant areas that people want to map on a routine basis. And if just doing it with aircraft or, or drones is just not tenable and not scalable. So yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of evaluating all that, just kind of like, yeah, we need the high spectral resolution data and we need that's not existent. We want to have control of our assets because we want to do onboard processing and have immediate notification to customers of, of anomalous conditions or incidents along over their assets. And so that all of that kind of played into why we said, let's own and control our own kind of have this vertical approach to owning the hyperspectral satellites, owning the analytics yeah. process and owning the end user facing product. Can you talk to an example, let's say, take a pipeline that needs to be monitored for gas leak or a better example, if there is one, and what is your technology actually detecting? And then a spectral image, what does it tell you? You know, it's looking at sort of the chemical makeup of something. And then how is that information used? Yeah. Yeah, this is a great question. So we kind of have these packages that we sell to our customers who are mainly on the commercial side, the oil and gas pipeline operators. So say, okay, we have a base package of the kind of four analytical products derived from our hyperspectral data, one of which is methane detection. So methane at certain wavelengths in the electromagnetic spectrums, particularly in the shortwave infrared spectrum, has absorption features around like somewhere around the 1700 nanometer wavelength and in the 23. 
two to 2300 nanometer wavelength. There are some kind of unique absorption features that with a hyperspectral imager at a high enough spectral resolution, you can discern those absorption features. And we use various algorithms, like proprietary algorithms that we have to match the shape of those absorption features to a known library that we have, again, that we've developed in-house. So I can use buzzwords like machine learning, neural nets, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The point is that you you have these analytical processes and algorithms that you use to, to give you confidence that, yep, I see methane or I don't see methane. I see it at a certain concentration level. So that's one, pro that's like a pretty no-nonsense, basic product offering that natural gas pipeline operator is going to want. Yeah. Or am I leaking methane? But that's what's better than detecting methane is preventing a leak from happening in the first place. And so what a lot of these pipeline operators want to know is what are the risks to my asset so I can stop a leak from happening before it in the first mm -hmm. place. So a lot, some of that is construction activity. There's all these pipelines all over the world. And a lot of them go through, like they're not always very recently marked exactly where they are underground. So you have risk of having some construction activity along your right of way. So we can look at things like moved earth or areas where there may have been construction activity or vehicle detection that might say that, oh yes, there, there is going to be construction activity and that would put your asset at risk. And these are exercises that, that our customers actually, they use aircraft right now to monitor for that. And it's very costly and subjective is usually flying an airplane with a pilot who's sticking their head out the window trying to look for things on the ground they, they want to do better and that's why they're coming to us and they're saying how can yeah, we do this yeah. better so construction activity is one thing we also look at changes in vegetative health and have like surface features change over time because 95 percent of pipelines are buried underground so you're not necessarily going to see a big methane plume or a big oil slick on the ground if it's a very small early leak. But what you will see is how that underground leak changes the surrounding environment. This is another really powerful thing about hyperspectral is that because we're not just looking for methane, because there are certain other technologies that just look for methane or just look for certain substances in a very small window of spectral bands. But because we have access to we have access to 500 spectral bands from visual to infrared, and what that allows us to do is look at this a broad scale, a broad range of features. And so, looking at changes in, in vegetative health along pipeline right of ways helps us see if there's underlying issues for these buried assets. So these are the kinds of packages that we develop for our customers. Say we can do the kind of direct hydrocarbon or oil and gas monitoring and mapping and quantification, then you've got the prevention side. How are we helping you prevent leaks from happening in the first place? And so those are kind of the buckets we have. And so you, you provide this information and you don't provide the hyperspectral data cube, you provide the insight. You say, here's the GPS location of your specific anomalous condition or incident. And that's the real critical thing is we're not just handing off the task. So they, we've got a room full of PhD hyperspectral data scientists on our team. Our customers don't, and we don't expect them to. And similar to SAR, you can't just hand off a bunch of raw SAR data to people. It's really, you have to have some specialization there. Same with hyperspectral. So if you look at going back to spatial versus spectral, if you think of photography, you can get images of the earth. Google's been doing it at different altitudes, right? Drone on the ground in space. Mm -hmm. 
And it seems to people like the world is photographed enough. We're pretty set there. But if you look at, and it could just be me, if you look at spectral imaging, that's just not something that I'm as knowledgeable about. It almost seems unobserved part of the world, 500 different bands. Are we looking at the earth that way, maybe on the ground, but not from space? Or what is looking at the world through spectrum? Is this untapped? unobserved. There's a lot of upside. Yeah, that's what we've seen. Because again, there was this existing kind of open source, fully mapped hyperspectral catalog that was available. We'd probably look at, okay, we don't need to launch a lot more satellites. And we'd really more focus on the analytics side. But they're just this just doesn't exist in the way it needs to be. There's really no commercial source of it at all. So we really are at the forefront of this emerging market for high spectral resolution data. And so it, it's starting to have its moment in the sun though now. It's been high-res optical, you know, Maxar kind of stuff for a while. And then like SAR is, was had a big thing. And then RF, definitely, definitely important. And now I think hyperspectral is starting to see. And part of it is because it is not trivial in terms of how you go about capturing that data it requires some sensitive instrumentation and you need to have really strong analytics behind it so it's more complicated than some of these optical payloads other kind of yeah, more yeah. traditional optical payloads and so i yeah it's definitely lacking on a scalable manner and it's traditionally been used in much smaller scales like on drones or aircraft or even just handheld spectrometers that people would go out into a field and try to look at the spectrum thing so yeah, there's really been nothing on a big scale like what we're building today. Yeah, that's cool. What can hyperspectral imagery show us? Does it give you eyes into something that's not readily apparent on the surface? But it's an interesting way to, to phrase it. Everything reflects and absorbs light in a unique manner on its surface. We talk a lot with machine learning algorithms having really good training sets. Most of these training sets that exist today are for spatial information. So this, it look at the shape of something. So is that, is that a circle or a square, or is it a, like what kind of geometric shape is that? And then I can match it to a library and say, yep, that is a, that's an airplane. It's the shape of an airplane on an airfield. Now what we're doing that in a sense, but we're looking at the shape of a spectrum and looking at the, again, those reflective absorption features within the spectrum. And that is much more information because instead of looking at three color bands, we're looking at 500 color bands. So you have a hundred times more data, over a hundred times more data than you would get from a normal pixel. And what that allows you to do is you aren't going to visually be able to see a, a cloud of methane. It doesn't have a shape in, in the visual spectrum with a normal camera because you're going to have to look at it through a much higher spectral resolution. Uh, it allows you to really see and identify yeah, the molecular makeup of objects. Now, it, it's not like an x-ray vision. So we're not yeah. seeing through an object. Actually, it gets to the one of the big use cases, especially on the defense and intelligence side, which is kind of the other half of our business that I'm happy to talk about as well, camouflage detection. So let's say you do have some type of fake aircraft or some cover over a military base or something like that. Being able to chemically fingerprint that object could tell you if that's real or it's fake. What is the truth behind well, the object that you're seeing. So, and I've been talking with folks about this a bit recently too. It's what is the, what is truth in today's society? 
a lot of people, what is the record of truth? I think actually it takes more than one phenomenology. So hyperspectral can lend a perspective of looking at that chemical fingerprinting and looking at the reflectance and absorption features of, of objects in the visible to infrared. SAR is good as well to have a validation on the on the subtle topographical changes, SIGINT with RF is very valuable as well. So if you have different phenomenologies from different sources, you can then use them all together to really validate, yes, that is true what we are seeing on the ground, or at least have a, a, a record of what is what we believe is true on the ground. Got it. Cool. So then you have data scientists that I imagine looking at the data, understanding what the data is saying looking for patterns. T tell me about like the data science part of this and then almost like connecting that to then the end user. How does the end user actually able to work with this data? Yeah, for us, it's, we'll, we'll go back to the methane example, which I think yeah. is pretty easy for people to relate to at least. If we have these known verified methane signatures and it has a certain shape to it and we say okay that is the shape of methane in a spectral graph and that's in our a, a library a reference library that we can then pull from and say does this match what we're seeing from our satellites on the ground or is that you know what is the signature in our data set match what we have in our library for methane and again using various processes, so using a match filter, using neural networks can efficiently and objectively and accurately identify a methane leak at a certain leak rate or quantity. And you can really apply that to really any spectral signature. We talk with, we have people in the field right now who are working with one of our energy clients to, to really accurately map on the ground what the spectral signature is for some of their products that they are flowing through their pipeline so that we can then very accurately identify when we're in space if their product is leaking and actually this is a really important really critical differentiator here as well is that not all oil and not all gas is equal they all, they have unique signatures if you have diesel versus jet a versus mm -hmm kerosene, other types of hydrocarbons, they're going to have slightly different spectral signatures. And but, but they might be very closely packed together and they might be owned by different operators. So if I can show that if there's a leak somewhere and I can identify, oh, that's kerosene and it's not jet A, I can say, okay, this operator is responsible for this leak, but not this other operator. And that's yeah. a very valuable yeah. piece of information. So there, here's the... What we deliver again is not the not saying here's a spectral signature that we found figured out. It is at this GPS location we've identified methane or kerosene or or jet A. Like that, that's the type of information we deliver, and we do that either through we have we do email text notification. We have something called Sigma, which is our spectral intelligence global yep. monitoring application, which is a, a web-based user platform. We can log in and see the shape file of your asset on your screen overlaid on a map and hear all the anomalous data points along your along your pipeline. And really just having that information readily and easily accessible to our end users is critical because that's what they want to see. And they yeah. don't want to be bothered with the I mean, space is cool, hyperspectral is cool. <laughs> they just want 
quick, accurate, actionable insights. Yeah, you don't want more data to figure out. So can you talk a little bit more about your commercial applications and maybe your defense applications? So you mentioned pipeline monitoring. What other applications or what other types of customers do you have on the commercial side? Yeah, and energy is definitely our big focus right now. And it's not, and so pipelines, started with pipelines because it's clear and present value proposition for us to monitor them. But now we're also looking at expanding within energy and looking at, so pipelines are in the midstream sector. There's yeah. upstream, which is like extraction and oil, like well pads mm-hmm. and, and fracking and all of that stuff. So monitoring those facilities, I think is very critical for us in the Permian Basin in West Texas and being able to see if there's methane emissions or, or other types of, of relevant insights that we can provide there. Same with downstreams on the refineries and fixed facility side. So there's more areas we're expanding on within energy. Beyond energy, there's kind of some of the parallel ones. There's the financial services markets that are tied to energy. And something really interesting is this the new carbon credit marketplaces. So being the, the go-to verification validation service for GHGs, looking at how these companies are being good stewards and reducing emissions can help them with the carbon credit programs and being able to trade offsets on marketplaces. How do we get into those marketplaces? That's an area that we're exploring now. But outside of energy, I know that's where you want us to go. More on mining is an area that's traditionally leveraged hyperspectral in the past, exploration for uh, rare earth elements, battery storage materials like nickel, cobalt, lithium. These are types of things that that hyperspectral has been historically used for. And it's something that we are certainly more than capable of providing value in in that area and also mining operations themselves. So I think the broader theme for us is sustainability and helping with the energy transition. And so part of that is like we're out here in California we're trying to move away from all internal combustion engine cars by 2030, 2035, yeah, something like that. Yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot of batteries we need. We're, or all solar with power walls. It's a lot <laughs> of batteries to go in those power walls. We need more efficient batteries, but also more material to make those batteries. So mining is part of the energy transition. So how can we help ensure that we're finding more sources of battery storage materials, but also the operations themselves are sustainable. And in the same way that we ensure that the pipeline operators are being responsible and being sustainable in their operations, same with mining. And then agriculture, precision ag, a big go-to market for commercial earth observation. You look at a lot of the folks across the board, they have a big ag strategy. It's an area that's quite crowded, to be frank. And I think we're still seeing what's the right play for us in that arena. But we really focused on energy because we thought that was the one where we make big immediate impact at the biggest market opportunity. And then there's the defense and intelligence side. So that's kind of the, yeah, that's the other half of our business. We are, a, we call it, people call us a dual use technology. And we like to say that we are commercial first and government second. We, we definitely provide valuable services to the government. We have contracts with the Air Force, the Space Force, various intelligence agencies. And especially now with obviously the war in Ukraine, there's a huge, huge push for better access to commercial Earth observation data. And it's really played, this has been an eye-opening time for people and really pulling the veil back on, on what these commercial operators can do. And I'm sure your listeners know, have been hearing a lot about this. And I know you've interviewed folks at, at a lot of these companies now that 
that are taking part in this. And so one of the phenomenologies is obviously missing has been hyperspectral. So we are very proud to be the US hyperspectral company that's a leader here that can actually provide value and hopefully provide intelligence that can help the warfighter on the ground and help save lives. Yeah. So in a situation like the war in Ukraine, what type of intelligence or insights can hyperspectral imagery provide? Hyperspectral can pretty much application agnostic on the intelligence side, and which can almost the tricky part. Now, there are certain things that that we aren't privy to because of the clearance issues, security clearance, that kind of stuff. But yeah. we know what the what hyperspectral is for in the past. It could come into play in the future. So I've mentioned before camouflage detection movements, and then big ones really are chemical weapon detection and WMD mm-hmm. detection, yeah, that's huge. looking at plume detection for missile launches and rocket launches. That's another big one as well. So there's, we've also even looked at hypersonic detection. That's tricky, but it's technically within the wheelhouse. So there's a lot of use cases that are very relevant to what's happening there and just from really any battlefield situation. Wow, that's super cool. It just seems like the insight about Earth is just going to go through the roof as far as what people can track. Yeah. And like I said before about the what is the record of truth? So SAR, RF, hyperspectral, you have all three of those at your disposal from an intelligence perspective looking at Ukraine. How do you refute what Putin is saying is happening on the ground and say, no, look, here is all of this data aggregated together that says, Nope, this is what's happening on the ground. And having all of those different sources, I think, is a very powerful tool at our disposal. Yeah, that's awesome. So what is next for Orbital Sidekick? What's 2023 looking like for you and beyond? 2023 is definitely the year of execution and operations for us. Having six satellites launching this year, it's a lot. It's really getting our fully functional commercial constellation, graduating from the proof of concept, the space station, and our kind of initial demo sat that we launched in 2021, really having a fully full-fledged commercial constellation and now executing on these major commercial contracts that we have signed with seven of the 10 largest pipeline operators in the world and our defense and intelligence contracts and getting those really kicked off into high gear here. So it's really a put up or shut up year for Orbital Sidekick, but ending time because this really is the the launch of commercial hyperspectral on a global scale that that hasn't been done before. So after this, so we're, we're not stopping at this these first six. Now we have a production line going for more satellites. So our goal is to continue to add to the constellation Right now, we're using SpaceX and the rideshare mission to go to the SunSync orbit. We're looking at other types of launch opportunities to go to different inclinations to get better revisits over certain areas, um, but also to really just expand our coverage of the globe. Really, our goal is to cover the entire globe multiple times a week. So we have a global hyperspectral atlas and really create a, a, a platform where we can extract these actual insights for any use case anywhere on the globe. And so that's the 2024-2025 roadmap for us. Yeah, that's cool. Do you have a an idea of how many satellites your constellation may have? Our next tranche will have eight more after these first okay. six. We'll get to 14. Um, that really helps. That, that kind of solidifies that 
a kind of global HSI atlas that we're building. And then we'll continue to grow from there. And really for us, it's about looking at how we can really grow on the analytics side and continue to, to show that's really the strength of the company. Doing a lot more of that onboard the spacecraft themselves, really being able to identify those spectral signatures that are relevant to our customers on the spacecraft. So really all we have to bring down to earth is the, the that insight as opposed yeah, to even yeah. the whole data cube. I was, I was thinking before, like earlier in the week, getting ready for this, like the guys who name colors for paint, like Benjamin Moore and Home Depot have to come up with names and identities for all these colors. I was just thinking of your data scientists, like they're looking at 500 different layers of data. And I'm sure there's some type of classification or naming system. This is, you said jet A or methane weak or methane heavier, <laughs> but that seems almost like a Lewis and Clark worthy investigation of the chemical matter on earth and just naming it. And I thought that was really cool when you said that you can get your, let's say you're producing something, you know, orbital sidekick could help you understand what's the chemical makeup or the spectral footprint. That's, that could be very useful information. Yeah. And building that catalog, building that background of, yeah, like you said, what are all those kind of known signatures that, yeah, that is at our fingertips that we can then match to what we're seeing on the ground. It's a big endeavor. And there are actually, there are publicly available data sets too, JPL, USGS. They have a lot of these libraries that we can build into like publicly available libraries that yeah, we can okay, yeah. leverage as well. Yeah, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, all of these signatures. And so it, it's a bit of a Herculean task, but it's exciting because there's so much potential there for us to access and really... So I say as well, it, hyperspectral is, is application agnostic as far as we're concerned. It's actually the trick for us has been to make sure our eyes don't get bigger than our stomachs. And that's why we've really been focusing on energy, specifically on pipelines to start. But we see a huge potential to continue to expand from there. As long as we stay with our North Star of sustainability and security, focusing on the energy transition, that has really made sure that we're staying on a really relevant path to help you know, achieve our goals as a company and to help our customers and partners achieve their goals too. Awesome. Is there anything, Dan, that I forgot to ask you or anything you wanted to say that didn't get teed up? I think we've covered a whole, <laughs> a, a nice wide gamut of things here. Yeah. So I, I meant thank you for the questions. They've been really great and allowed me to really kind of expand on what we're, we're looking to accomplish here. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time and good luck in 2023 and beyond. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. That wraps up this episode. We'll be back soon with more stories that explore the world of new space. Bye for now.